Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Last week, Pastor Marshall covered uh, Acts 11 and 12. If you didn't get to catch that message, I highly recommend you going and catching the uh, podcast. We also have we also post these videos on YouTube as well if you like to prefer that type of um, thing. Uh, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, so we're continuing our march through the book of Acts. We're almost halfway through. We're just going to cover the one chapter today because it's pretty long. I think it's like 48-something verses, so we're going to be in just Acts chapter 13 this week. But what I'm going to do here is um, I'm, I like those kind of movies that give you the ending in the beginning, and then they backtrack all the way and they start and show you how that plays out through the entire movie. I love that type of storytelling. So I'm going to do that today. I'm going to give you what we call, and when we prepare sermons here, we like to have a big idea. Like one thing that we want you to take away from, if you've heard nothing else of what I've said, if you've gotten distracted by your phone or something, you're like, what that guy preached on today? This is the one thing. And so you can't say you didn't hear it because this is the very beginning. If you're already distracted, we got problems. Okay, so here's the big idea. Keep your head up. Now, if you're at a certain church, that could just mean be positive. Keep your head up, man. No. What I mean by that is keep your eyes on Jesus at all times. And what we're going to do is we're going to see, as we walk through Acts chapter 13, we're going to see how this guy Saul kept his eyes on Jesus no matter what he was coming in contact with. No matter the distractions that were around him. He had one mission in mind, and he kept his head up at all times. All right? So that's what we're going to do today. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to read through 5. Now, we are guests here. We like to read Scripture. We're going to read every verse here today. It's a lot. So we're going to read some, talk some, read some, talk some. So uh, Acts 13, 1 through 5. And now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was, all call, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called, him, or called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, sent, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the God, word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So if you remember from last week, Pastor Marshall covered this church in Antioch, and they were the first church of the early churches to do two things. One, they were the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in their city. And what I want us to do is we're reading through Acts, and especially today, I want you, when you hear Gentiles, I want you to think non-believer. Because in our context today, they are synonymous. We're all Gentiles, right? But for in this context, we got to be thinking someone who is not already a follower of Jesus. But the other thing that they were very much about was missions. They were the first church to have this heart for other areas, and they would collect things. Last week we learned that they collected items and sent it down to Judea, who was going through um, a famine. Okay, So this is that church in Antioch. And we're going to show a map here. So if you thought Pastor Marshall was gone, that means we didn't do maps. You're crazy, because I love maps too, okay? So here's a map. 
And this is Paul's first missionary journey. I call this his first leg. This is what we're going to cover today. So Antioch, there's two Antiochs we're going to cover today. There's one in Syria over here on the right side, and up in Pisidia, you can see there's another Antioch. So we're going to talk about both, just in your mind. Just remember, we're talking about two completely different cities. And so as we just read, they went down to Seleucia, they, they camped there, and then they took a sail. And Cyprus is this little island in the Mediterranean. They spent some time there, and from Paphos, they came up to Pergia and then Antioch. And then at the very end of today, we're going to talk about Iconium. That leads us into chapter 14. And I drew these. I couldn't get the map to actually cover uh, North Africa here. Um, but you see a, there's an arrow pointing down. That's where Jerusalem is. And then that area where we just learned about Cyrene um, is located in North Africa. So what I just want you to do is kind of get your mind wrapped around when we talk about these cities. This is the path that Saul and Barnabas was taking on their first leg, their first missionary journey. So there's five names listed here in verse 1. I think are very, is really fascinating. I'm just going to cover this real quick. Um, we have Saul and Barnabas. We know those guys. We've been talking about them for a while now. Um, but remember something about Saul. Tarsus was on the map. I forgot to mention it. Uh, Tarsus was not part of the Judean area. It was on the north, or the, I should call it the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. So Cyrus, I mean, Saul was a Jewish man, um, and he was also a Roman citizen born in a Greek city. Okay, so you got to kind of know that about who Saul was. Um, and that would be like modern-day Turkey. You had this guy, Lucius of Cyrene, so we just noticed from that, that's in North Africa, just east or west, I'm sorry, um, of Egypt. Not much is known about him outside of just one of the founding fathers of this church in Antioch. Um, some people, there's some theologians, maybe you've been taught this, that tries to uh, link Lucius of Cyrene to Luke, the writer of Acts, there's very thin evidence for that. So if you were taught that at some point, I would just put that aside because it's not really supported by any extra biblical or even in the biblical narrative. Uh, so again, since Simon was located in North Africa, then you have this guy, Menean, who's the father, or I'm sorry, the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Now that's not the same Herod we learned about last week who died and his body was eaten by worms. This is like the father of all the Herods. Uh, this has been the Herod of Jesus' time. Okay, so got to put the right context for who that guy is. Uh, you also had the Simeon the Niger. Now, uh, not again, kind of like with Cyrus, uh, there's not much known about him, but he has a very Jewish name in Simeon, but he's also got this other name called Niger. And there's many theologians believe he was also from Africa because when you translate that word there, it, it's, it literally means a person with dark complexion. And there's been some belief that he maybe came from Ethiopia. So why is this important? I think it's fascinating. You got five guys leading a church, 30 years in the first early church era, who has accomplished something that we still struggle with today. You got an ethnic Jew born as a Roman citizen in a Greek city, a couple Judeans, some Africans. And they've created this church who's mission-minded, but is void of the ethnic prejudices and racism that we see here today. They achieved something 30 years within the church that we are still struggling with today. I find that to be incredibly fascinating. So that's just a side point, okay? But in verse 3, we see here that it says that the Holy Spirit spoke to them after they were praying, and it says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then it says in verse 3, then after fasting and prayer, praying, they laid their hands and sent them off. Now, when we read the Bible, this is something we can very, miss very easily. There's no time frame for this, right? We like to think, well, this must have happened immediately. 
Well, we have no idea how long it took them. Now, if you're living in the first century, you're going to make a trip. There's some preparations you're going to have to make. I mean, my family likes to take a big vacation every year and we go cross country. It takes three to six months just to plan that. And if you're going to go sailing in the first century, you're going to have to do some preparation. Okay, so what I find interesting about this little moment here is that Barnabas and Saul were given direction, but not directions. Catch that? They were told, set apart, I'm going to send you someplace, but they didn't know where. So what was their first reaction? To pray and fast. Because what we like to do, we like to get direction and then just go. Because we're eager. We want to be used by God, which is a very good thing. It's a natural thing. We want to be used. But the example that we're given here is that when we get that inkling that the Spirit's leading us to a place, we should pause for just a moment. Fast and pray and seek directions. Where am I supposed to go, Lord? Because the worst thing you can do in these moments is just follow your heart, your gut instinct, right? You're in, you're these things that lead us. And we talked about this in the church a lot. You, the worst thing you can do is follow your heart. And the Bible describes our heart as a wicked place that is like, full of filthy rags, right? That's what our heart really is. And you start leading by that and not by the Spirit, you're going to spend 15 years in a really bad marriage. You're going to spend 15 years in a place you're not supposed to be, in a job you're not supposed to be. So let's be led by the Spirit, and let's just take a time to pause, hit pause for a moment, and make sure we're going in the direction that the Spirit's leading us. So there's just a side point that I'm going to pull out there. All right, so um, there's, a, there's a thing that's happening here in verses 4 and 5 uh, that I want to key on, because it's a pattern we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And then what did they do? They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues. So you're going to see a pattern where the first thing Saul does in any town that he visits is he goes directly to the synagogue. He did this after his conversion in chapter 9. He's doing it here in chapter 13. He does it in 14, 17, 18, and 19. And by the time you get to around chapter 19, he's already back down in Jerusalem and he's heading off to Rome. This was his pattern. So we're going to put a pin in that. I want you to kind of put that in the back of your head. We're going to come back to that because that's an important thing that we're going to see as a pattern in the book of Acts. Or in this chapter, at least. All right. Read. We're going to be in chapter, uh, verse 6 here. When they had gone down through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that's what his meaning of his name, opposed them in seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, a little nugget there, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. I'm really glad that he used the D word there because that would be trip up a lot of pastors, let me tell you. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's a question mark. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for some time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So a couple things to point out here. One, this, we have this interaction between Saul and a magician and a proconsul. Magician here, kind of a strange translation. It can mean multiple things. It can actually be translated as a wise man, 
and a, or a priest, a, a not a priest of God, but also a sorcerer and a false prophet. So what Luke is doing here in his mind, right, he's linking the idea of sorcery and a false prophet. So this guy, a Bar-Jesus, someone today we would call a charlatan, a fraud, a hoodwinker, a scam artist, right? He's a manipulator, a snake oil salesman. Anybody in here sell used cars? No? Okay, good. Used car salesman, right? <laughs> I used to sell used cars, so I can say that, okay? All right? These men, these people, they used magic as a way to manipulate people. That's who this bar Jesus was. Now, this proconsul, that's just a title given to a Roman administrator of a province, a Roman province. And what in the Roman culture, these leaders of these areas would put a very high level of importance on these types of magicians because divination was a big deal in the Roman time because it was their way of using the spiritual things to help them in their quest to lead people, right? This is how the Romans achieved this. So this men like Bar-Jesus would have been a master manipulator, expert liars. And Luke describes Sergius Paulus as a man of intelligence who sought Saul and Barnabas. So he's a man of intelligence. That's interesting to me. That means he wasn't an idiot. He wasn't stupid. He was a learned man. So what this also tells me, if I'm reading this, is that you can be highly intelligent and very gullible. You ever met like a super smart book learned person? They're not always the most like socially cued up, right? They always, always kind of look, seem a little awkward in certain situations. They're sometimes even gullible. It's like they're always up in their head. Super intelligent people. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that's like across the board. That's not true for everybody, right? I'm a super intelligent person. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm average at best. I'm average at best. But those, you know, intelligent people doesn't mean always they, have, they work out of wisdom, right? Those two ideas are not always linked together. So to put it another way, you can be intelligent and ignorant at the same time. So we have Bar-Jesus, who was a false prophet. So let's put that category as a liar. And you have Sergius Paulus, and we're going to put him in the category of a knowledgeable but ignorant person. But clearly, Saul and Barnabas had made some names for themselves. Now, they had been on this island of of Cyprus for some time, at least, I mean, they had to be traveling. They had made some name for themselves, or why else would this Sergius Paulus seek after them? If he's looking for magicians in the area to give him some sort of knowledge, this is why he's seeking after Paul, Saul, and Barnabas. I said I wouldn't do that, and I just did it. Now, they had been preaching in the synagogues. They had traveled the whole island, and I find this little interaction between Saul and Bar-Jesus to be very interesting on multiple levels. One, you can kind of tell that Bar-Jesus is a little afraid because he's going to lose his influence over Sergius Paulus if all of a sudden, you know, he's claimed, you know, he found out to be a magician. And the funny thing about liars is this. To be a good liar, you have to know the truth. You can't be a liar and not know the truth. Then else it wouldn't be a lie. You would just be of the ignorant, right? And when a lie is faced with truth, what typically follows? You ever told a lie and all of a sudden somebody finds out and they're confronting you with it? What's the first thing that you do? Your heart starts pounding, a little fear sits in, right? So what we draw from this is there's a difference between a lie and ignorance. 
They're both wrong, but their motives are different. They're coming at it from a different place, right? So we have this rebuke of Bar-Jesus. So Saul is what? He's filled with the Holy Spirit in this moment. And he says intently, that means with passion. He says it was something, some gusto with him. You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, you full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked, straight paths of the Lord? The ESV words things strangely. In other words, what, what Saul is saying here is, you son of the devil, you will no longer defame, dishonor the word of the Lord, and will no longer twist like a pretzel and manipulate the truth for your own personal gain. Be blind. So what is the result of this rebuke? What did we just read? That a blind man who was once ignorant because of a false prophet, he saw and believed. And there are times, so what's our takeaway from this? Like, what do we, what's our application here? There's going to be times when you are faced in life with a bar Jesus and a Sergius Paulus. They're all around us. Those who seek knowledge and truth, but living out of ignorance. And those who reject the truth because they know it's truth, because they seek power and control. So they speak lies question is I have from this is how do we or how are we going to react when we come in contact with one of these two types because I can tell you like as a parent as a pastor I love people who ask questions my oldest calls it dad time so when she asks something simple like hey dad where's the milk and we end up in some like deep like thought of like conversation about where milk comes from right I love legitimate questions because what it tells me is when somebody's asking questions, that means the soil of their heart is ready. It's been fertilized, right? You know this parable of the four soils, right? It's ready and you can start dropping in seeds. I love questions. I love people who ask the tough questions of why. I love when a Christian who's been a saved for 20 years stands back and goes, why why are we here? What, What are we doing here? What do I believe? I've never asked these questions before. I've just always just believed. But I've never really asked for myself, what do I think about Jesus? And what he's done for me? I love questions. But notice here how Saul responds to Bar-Jesus. He's filled with the Spirit. His motivation isn't just to be right. Because he saw the truth of God being manipulated and distorted for personal gain, and he shut that down. And what this means for us is when we see similar distorting of the truth, bar Jesus is in our life, before we react, we have to be ask, Holy Spirit, fill me. Because if you react out of your own ignorance, if you react out of your own anger, frustration, wanting to be right, we are no better than the bar Jesus, who's a false prophet, and we need to sit down and shut up. So we have to be filled with the Spirit. Because for Saul, there was no greater issue on the table for him than the truth of the gospel. He drew a line in the sand, and he said, you are not going to cross this line. And I believe that if we are going to live in today's society, then we must have a similar mind as Saul. Because what is on the line? What are we doing here? 
What's on the line is a Sergius Paulus. And he's watching. They're watching. And how we react is going to determine in many ways how they react. So let's be like Saul. All right? Let's pick up in verse 13. Now Paul, and now I finally get to say Paul and not Saul. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Paphilia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. I just want to pause there. We're not going to cover it today. This will be a big deal in a later chapter, but that's John Mark. That's the big ruckus between Paul and Barnabas. That's who we're talking about here. But they went down from Perga, and they came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. See, that's where you see that again, right? He went to the new city, goes in the synagogue. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Hey, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and with martial motioning hands, he began to speak. Okay, so we're going to pause here for just a second, because I want to talk about this Paul. So from here forward, it's Paul, no longer Saul. This is an interesting narrative twist that Luke does here. This is not a God-inspired name change. This is not like Abram to Abraham, Sarah to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, Simon to Peter. This is a narrative, mission-oriented move by Paul. He does it likely for two reasons. One, in the area that we showed in the map where he's going to be in, the name Paul is way more acceptable in Greek and Roman culture than Saul. Saul was very Jewish. Paul was not. So he made a decision. I'm going to go with Paul. But there's another reason I think that was important for Paul. It's because Saul had a reputation. Right? He knew who he used to be. He knew what Saul did to the church. And he knew that people, when they heard about this Saul, would be maybe not so willing to listen to him. Right? This was a a purposeful change. Now, Paul has changed, right? His name has changed. How he talks, how he interacts with others, his motivations, his willingness to be persecuted, all of these things have changed. But the Saul inside of him has not changed. He is still zealous for the Lord. You find this as you continue to read your Bible, and you are going to find out just how zealous this guy, Paul, was for the Lord. But the difference between Saul and Paul is where he's directing that zeal. Instead of zealousness for the Lord directed at persecuting Christians because he thought he was right, because he thought this little rebel rowers of of Christians were going to take people away from God, and he was zealous for that. Now he's just focused that, like we were talking about the maglab, that that giant magnet over there in, in FSU, he focused that, fo- that, that, that zeal to the gospel. Same guy, different name, slightly different motivations, slightly different tactic, but now he's got a new message. It's the gospel. And this is important because he's about to preach. We're going to read it. He's about to preach the gospel. And guess what some people are going to do? They're going to reject it. And if he acts like Saul and not Paul which means humble. Now that's, come on, that preaches right there. Paul's name means humble. 
So if he acts like Saul, when he faces rejection, what's his reaction going to be? How did the old Saul act? That's not what he does. All right, so let's pick up here. What I'm going to do, Paul preaches the gospel here. It's a lot of verses, I know, but I felt like in my prep that I just needed to just read it. I may stop it every once in a while to clarify a few points, but I just want us to hear how Paul explains the gospel to both Jewish people, converts of Judaism, and also those who he says fears God. Okay, so we're going to read 16 all the way through. I believe it's like, yeah, it's a ways. All right, let me get some water first. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of his people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. You stiff-necked people, we just, I just put up with you. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. I just want to make a side point here. Even Paul was like generalizing here. It's about 40 years. It was about 450 years. So sometimes it's okay to be like, the Bible speaks in generalities. It's, it's okay, all right? I just want to make that side point. Verse 19. And after destroying seven nations, I'm sorry, uh, verse 20. All this took about 450 years, and after that they, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Did David do all of God's will? I mean, here, that's what Paul is saying. But we know from the life of David, he did a lot of things that we would think would not be out of God's will. Right? It's an interesting point there. I don't have too much time to dig about. I think that's a, a fascinating thing to think about as we continue. Of this man's offspring, talking about David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Okay, so pause there for a second. And what Paul has just done is he's, he's preaching to the choir. Until that statement. <laughs> right? He just summarized all of the Old Testament to a bunch of Jews in the synagogue. He summarized the Old Testament. But then he says that right there. Of this man's offspring, David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, that's John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So if you're not familiar with the Gospels, John the Baptist came out of the wilderness, and many thought he was the anointed one, the Messiah. And in fact, in Jewish history leading up to Jesus, there had been many supposed messiahs who had, been, who had raised up, who had formulated some sort of rebellion, and who had died. And some people were thinking John the Baptist was this guy, and he was like, oh, whoa, whoa, nope, you're not giving me that title. I'm not even worthy to untie the man's shoes. Verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those of you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. We're going to come back to that point. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, oof, 
which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So what he's speaking about here is that during Jesus' time, these men, these prophets, these well-learned, intelligent men would read of the prophets every single Sabbath, and they didn't get it. It Straight over their head. And they condemned him. Verse 28, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all of that was written of him, they took him down from that tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is also said, written in the second psalm, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. So Paul is drawing on the conclusion that this man, Jesus, the good news that we have been given, the message of salvation, is that Jesus, this man, he died on a tree and God rose him from the dead. And this is the message of salvation that was given to the people of Israel ages ago. And Jesus is the one that fulfilled it. 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he, this is the, he's drawing this parallel. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid to his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Why is this important? Because in Jewish tradition, the Messiah wasn't going to die. And so when these men would come up and they would think they were the Messiah and they died, they're like, well, I guess he's not. But here, Paul is saying that while Jesus died on, the tr- on a cross, on a tree, he was raised again, so he never saw corruption. That's very important when you're trying to convince a Jewish person that Jesus is the Messiah. Very important. So let it be known, verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is now to this day and this moment proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul makes this point in the book of Romans that the law was weak and it could not do one thing, could not forgive sins. You could follow the law to the letter of the T. You could do everything a little Jewish person was supposed to do, right? To be honorable before God. And it could do nothing to save them. It was nothing but a process. A shadow of Jesus and the things to come. So it was powerless to do what only Jesus could do. And if you're here today, and you've never heard that before, For you, through this man, forgiveness is sin, of sins is now proclaimed to you. You have an offering of salvation before you. And you can take that offering, and you can live it out, and you can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you can accept that thing. Or you can be like so many who are about to see, you can reject it. You, from this day forward, if that's the first time you've ever heard it, you cannot stand before God at the end times and say, I didn't know. What do you mean? I never was told that. Well, now you've been told. The offering is before you. So Paul makes a, a warning here, verse 40. 
Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you it to you. Verse 42, and as they went out, the people begged. Oh, they're like, this is so good. I love this. I never thought of it this way. They begged that these things may be told to them the next Sabbath, a week later. And after the meeting, the synagogues broke, out, broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Paul, who was once Saul, who used the sword to persecute Christians, is now using the Bible as his sword. Everything he just said is 100% backed up with Scripture. No one could say that Paul, dude, you misunderstood something. You got something off here. He knew he was right, right? But did he yell? I, I didn't sense anything in here that speaks that Paul was angry. He didn't even need any fancy analogies. The guy didn't even use any fancy maps. How was that possible? How do you preach from the Word of God and not use maps? I don't know. I don't get it, right? No, he spoke the truth of who Jesus was in love, and the people were astounded. But did they believe? They were intrigued, but did it have any effect on their heart? Well, let's find out. Verse 44. Then the next Sabbath, a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So that means a bunch of Gentiles heard this message and was like, I want to know more. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul had spoken. They were filled with jealousy because an offering of salvation was made to somebody, not them. All of a sudden, they had to share. They didn't want to share, so they got jealous. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out. I'm sorry, uh, I missed a part there. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what spoken by Paul and reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning now to the Gentiles, the non-believers. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, as that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What was the purpose of Israel? What was the whole purpose of why God raised them up as a nation? To be a light, a bright light of God in the world. The whole point of the law wasn't a set of rules. It was telling them how they were supposed to be different from the other cultures. When we read all those weird laws in you know, Leviticus and Exodus and all that weird stuff, that's a contradiction to some other country around them that was living in a different way. That's why it's weird to us. It made total sense to them. Because they didn't take care of sojourners in other countries. And God was like, nope, when they come to us, we're going to take care of them. That's why there's some weird laws there, okay? In verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and many who were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the, the devout women of high standing. I'm gonna, okay. 
inside of the devout women of high standing. And the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And when they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went out to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The thing I want to focus on is what I mentioned at the beginning of this message. Through all of that, what did Paul do? He kept his head up and his eyes on Jesus. There are many moments in that little thing there, those last probably like five or six verses, where Paul could have let his head drop. He could have been distracted. He could have let the response of the crowd, popularity, fame, right? Followers on Instagram, right? Somebody looked at my reel a thousand times and now I'm popular, right? That could have distracted Paul. The dis- disagreement with the Jews, he could have turned into that old Saul and let that pride that once lived in him that was, you know, willing to persecute people because people disagreed with him, that could have come up. How about the persecution from the devout Jews? He could have let fear distract him. But no, he kept his eyes up on Jesus at all times. Because Paul believes he was given two messages. Now, one is mentioned here. I said we're going to put a pin in and come back to it. It's the message of salvation. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he also says we are given the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul believes that we are giving two things as Christians in this world. We have the message of salvation for those who need it, but we are also called to be reconcilers. And he actually says in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, he implores people to be reconciled to God. And he's literally begging people to be reconciled. And I think those two things. Those two ideas coupled together is why Paul reacts the way he does. I want to put it in 2022 terms, and if you're a young person here, maybe you get this. He understood the assignment. Nobody got that? Oh, maybe I'm weird. I don't know. Romans chapter 1. What does Paul say about the gospel? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. That's what Paul believes about the gospel. Because he knows he's right. On his side is right. He doesn't have to prove to anyone that he was right. But he knows there's an expectation that comes with this message. And it's that ministry of reconciliation. Because he remembers what it was like to at one time be the ignorant. He remembers what it was like to think he was so right because he had read the Bible the right way to the point when he was willing to stand by the stoning of Stephen and approve of it. He knows this was his once his life. But what does he do? When he's faced with persecution, he reacts. And how does he react? He lets the dust Shake off his feet. Now, in, in our terms, he let it go, right? If the message was written today, it would just say, let it go, right? Like, that's what he did, right? He let it go. He didn't let it bog him down. He said, okay, I preached the gospel. You rejected it. Okay, fine. I'm going to move it on to the next town. So this leads me to a question. Are we prepared to react like Paul did if we gain a following, someone disagrees with us, or we face persecution. 
Are we willing to react like that? Are we going to stay the course and keep our eyes on Jesus? Or are we going to let our eyes be distracted by this shiny thing or this shiny thing or this war in Russia or this sickness that's going around or an election that's coming up or whatever it may be that's trying to distract us from Jesus? Are we going to let those things get to us? That gas is $4.20 and I have a V8 truck. I'm really stressed out about that, guys. Can't drive anywhere in town and spend $500 a week on gas, right? These are things that are just meant to distract us and keep our eyes off Jesus. Are they important things? Absolutely. They're important in our day. But all they are are distractions. And what we have to be are those people who look forward, keep our heads up, and keep our eyes on Jesus. I'm closing here. And I know sometimes I can be a resounding, not gong, but I can kind of preach the same thing over and over again, and I apologize. I believe in two things. Christ crucified and love your enemies. It's what I believe. If you get to know me, I'm big on those two things, right? So as I'm closing here, I'm going to talk about this for just a second, because Paul was persecuted for preaching the gospel. He spoke truth, and they riled up, and they persecuted him. So, what we've been talking about, this kind of a theme in Acts so far, that persecution is coming to the church in America. It's coming. And many people believe that a war is coming as well, if it's not already here. But let this be true. If we're going to be persecuted, if we're going to suffer, let it be for the gospel and the gospel alone. If we're going to face persecution, let it be because we were willing, like Paul, to speak boldly and intently in the face of a bar Jesus and the truth of what God is and Jesus Christ crucified. Because here we get a little glimpse of Paul's heart. He was faced with people that did not agree with him. Did he get offended? No. He was filled with the Spirit and joy. He was faced with people that didn't disagree with him. Did disagree with him. Did he scream and yell at his enemies? No, he spoke boldly truth from a place of humility and love. Did he allow resentment and anger to build up towards those who persecute him? No. He just moved on. Can we be a type of people that read something and we don't agree with and just go, okay. I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to make a big thing about it. Can we just do that? Can that be something that is part of our makeup as Christians? Can we do something that the world can't do? Because what the world likes to do is read something they don't agree with and then just rail on it, right? We call it cancel culture. That's what they're about. Can we be something that's anti that? Paul was comforted with something, right? And he was confronted with this idea. He didn't just scream and yell. And here's a point that I want to come from today. This is something I want to make very clear. It is okay to hate and despise evil. In fact, you're told to do that in the Bible. We are supposed to be people who hate evil on the same level that God hates evil. We're supposed to hate the things that God hates and love the thing that God loves. So you can do two things at the same time. You can hate evil and love your neighbor. 
It's possible. Why is it possible? Because Jesus did it. And how do we know he did it, right? Well, you can go back and read the Gospels and see how he did it. You can also read Peter's letter in 1 Peter. So we're going to go there for just a second. 1 Peter 2 says this. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, and you endure? What good is it if you're persecuted for sinning? What good is that, right? If you're persecuted because we were just jerks to people, that's not persecution. But then he goes on and says, but if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. What have we been called? To suffer. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's the end of that verse. I'm not going to continue. We've been given an example in Christ that we should suffer for good. That's our example. So here's the thing. Is that easy? Nope. Suffering for doing good, this is going to be incredibly hard. But how can we react like Jesus? Like, how can we react in such a way like Jesus? Because the Jesus bar is high. Like, Marshall, Marshall was standing here. He's 6'10", looks at 11. His bar is way higher than my bar because he can reach higher. Jesus' bar is even higher than that, right? So, but we're, we're told we use Jesus as an example. So how do we do that? We ask to be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're full of something, what is coming out of you? the thing that you're full with. And if you're filled with the Spirit, what are the things that's coming out of us? Well, in this case, it's the Spirit. And that looks like love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what's supposed to be coming out of us. Not anger and deceit and all these other things that comes out of people. No, we're supposed to be patient and kind and gracious to others. This is how we respond. This is how we keep our heads up and our eyes on Jesus. I am convinced that living in today's world, in society, we've talked about this already, and to be a Christian is the most difficult task that is set before us. To be a good Christian, to be a good parent, a good mother, a good father, a good co-worker, the best American, to be all these things, but also simultaneously be a God-fearing, Jesus-sold-out person, it is the most difficult task before us. Because all around us are bar Jesuses. All around us. We look around and we see people are trying to twist lies twist truth. They know just enough about the Bible and they can twist it and make it incorrect and they can manipulate the situation and draw people away from God. That's what's all around us. But you know else who's all around us? Sergius Paulus's. People who are ignorant of the truth. And guess what we're called to do? Love both at the same time. And if we've been given this message of salvation and this ministry of reconciliation, then we must be the type of people who keep our eyes on Jesus, 
those who draw a gospel-sized line in the sand, those who are filled constantly with the Spirit, not motivated to be right all the time, and work out of kindness and self-control. Because notice again what Paul does. He said we were going to come back to it. He shook off the dust on his feet and went to the next town. Does that mean he never preached to the Jews again? Next verse, next chapter, it says this in 14.1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. He kept going. He didn't say, well, these people disagree with me, so now I'm going to just cast off the Jews for all time. No, he says, I have the great anguish in my heart from my brethren that they would know the truth of the gospel. So he kept preaching to them, even though he knew they would reject it. Look, I'm not saying, please don't hear this and think that I'm saying that Christians should be pacifists. And we should be weak pushovers. Uninvolved people in society, we should just sit in a corner and be quiet and let the world crash down around us. That's not what I'm saying. Don't take that away from this. Please do not do that. Because we, if we're using the Bible as our example and we're looking at Paul, because Paul says he imitates Christ, so imitate him then we should speak intently and boldly for the things of the Lord. But what we do is we keep our eyes up on Jesus and we ask for wisdom to know when to speak and what to say. Never before, because never before in the history of uh, human, humans have we been given more opportunities to speak and be heard. That little phone... You can do amazing and terrible things with it. So let's use those opportunities that we've been given and our voices. We talked about it today. The ruha, the breath that God spoke into your lungs and you're now breathing it out. Let us use that to proclaim the goodness and faithfulness of our God. That he sent his son to die on a cross for all. I can't think of any better message for us to speak. Let, I am, I'm so tired of dividers. I am so tired. It's like a weariness in my soul of people who just create division. Let us be bridge builders for the gospel. Jesus was a carpenter. Our Savior was a carpenter. He built things for a living. So let's build bridges for the gospel. Now, here's the thing about the cool thing about bridges. I'm going to nerd down on bridges, right? Bridges take you from one place to another. We're over here. We have the message of salvation, and there's a bunch of people on the other side that don't. And we're told in the Bible we have a message and a ministry that we're supposed to build bridges to get to those people. And the cool thing about bridges, they come in all shapes and sizes. Some are steel. Some are wooden. Some are just rope. And when you don't have all that, some people in this world will just make a lasso and figure out a way to get to the other side. So what we have to do is be careful that we don't judge people's tactics for spreading the gospel because it's not the way that we would do it. They may have different supplies or a lack thereof at their disposal. I'm going to go a little long here. i got to say this. We're in a war and we have to use modern tactics. Does anybody know why the Civil War, in the Civil War, the massacring of soldiers was so high? It's because they used outdated tactics. 
They were using Revolutionary War European battlefield tactics. They lined up thousands of men and they shot at each other. Now, 100 years previous to that, it made sense because the old school muskets were super, very, very, very inaccurate. Fast forward to the 1860s and all of a sudden those rifling in the, in the barrels made it easy to shoot somebody from 500 yards. So you line up 1,000 men on 1,000 men, 900 died. You had a Gatling gun. You had much bigger weapons to take down your enemy. I believe if we are going to fight battles today using outdated battle tactics, we are going to lose every time. We have to be willing to change our tactics as, as, as Christians to reach the lost. What does that look like? I can tell you this. We're in North Florida, here close to South Georgia. The way you are going to preach the gospel to a country boy from South Georgia, South Alabama, is not the same way you're going to use the gospel in San Francisco. I know how to do the South Georgia boy. Let's go fishing. Let's make some barbecue, right? Let's, let's watch sports together. Let's watch college football. That's how you win that one. I have no idea how to reach the lost in San Francisco. No clue. Don't even ask me to do it. It's not my spiritual gifting. I wasn't called to that. God planted me here in Tallahassee. That means that my battle tactics have to be for those kind of people who live here, to the southerner. I'm from Alabama. I get that culture. I understand that. So we can't judge those who use a different tactic or method to, for the gospel in San Francisco, New York, someplace else, Europe, whatever it may be, because they're, they, what they've done is they've taken a message that is clear, it's locked up in a box. You can't change the gospel. But they're using different methods to get people. They're trying to reach people in a different area. So what we can't do is think that one, it's one size fits all. It's not the way it works. So I'm going to leave you with this today. What is our responsibility? Keep our head up and look to Jesus at all times. Don't let the noise around you distract you and keep your head down. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's figure out a way. Let the Holy Spirit wreck your heart. Let it soften you. Take that heart of stone, man, and turn it into a heart of flesh for the lost. These are the people we're trying to reach. The ignorant, the lost. These are the ones that are in our mission field. Can you make your home your mission field? Can you make your job a mission field? Can you make publics while you're checking out a mission field? Somehow. Chick-fil-A, a mission field. I don't care where it's at. We have to be those who see the world as our mission field, who love people because God loves them. And let's take that message of salvation, that ministry of reconciliation, and let's take it to those who need it the most. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.